Okay. If you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation. We'll start in chapter 15, verse 5, and we'll go all the way through chapter 16. And the text is also printed in the next page of the bulletin for you. Uh, this section of the book of Revelation is prophecy. Uh, prophecy in the way that we usually think about that word, uh, probably instinctively, as in uh, talking about what's going to happen in the future, <clears throat> right? So it's a prophecy, though it's, it's, it's a prophecy of God's final judgment of Jerusalem for their continuing and active and violent opposition to Jesus. So uh, Jerusalem had, uh, the Jews had killed their own Messiah, uh, as we read about in the book of Acts and the book of Revelation and other places uh, in, the, in the New Testament. Uh, they kept persecuting Christ's people for decades. They kept persecuting the church and killing Christians, uh, those who were truly God's people. And in so doing, they brought down the fury of God's wrath on themselves, and it was going to be terrible. And so John is writing these things in the book of Revelation to bolster his friends who are in the churches of Asia Minor, <clears throat> Christians who are feeling the pressures of these persecutions that are emanating from Jerusalem, but reaching out all the way out to where they were a thousand miles away uh, in the western parts of what is modern day Turkey. Uh, the, the Christians in these churches were, uh, metaphorically speaking, and this is using the sort of symbolic language that we find uh, in the scriptures, the Christians were uh, far out in the sea of the Gentiles, far from the mainland of Israel, a thousand miles away, far from the mountain in Jerusalem, but the little islands of Jewish presence, uh, Israel is represented by the land and the islands that are in the sea, of the Gentiles, the islands of Jewish presence in their cities, the synagogues, they extended the hostility of Jerusalem toward Jesus and his people pretty much anywhere where there was a church in the Roman Empire. So, so John wrote to encourage and instruct the churches with the prophecy that the day of the Lord's righteous anger was at hand. So as with most prophecy that we have recorded for us in the scriptures, these events, they were future for the original audience, but now they're past for us. So prophecy here talking about future events to the original audience, but things that have happened almost 2,000 years ago over the course of history. So, <clears throat> uh, but uh, even though they're not still out in front of us necessarily as the, the primary application of these uh, scriptures, everything written in the scriptures is helpful for us. Everything written in the scriptures is, is written for our encouragement and for our instruction. And so the topic of God's wrath and judgment uh, is uh, is helpful for us, even though th these things have been, in a sense, they they were fulfilled 2,000 years ago and in the destruction of Jerusalem. The topic of God's wrath and judgment is understandably difficult for people to consider and for people to talk about, but God broaches the subject. He does it often in the scriptures. He broaches the subject for our own good. So <clears throat> it is good for us to know what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, it is good for our trust in Christ. It's good for our relationship to God and for our repentance to talk about these things. So that's what we're going to do, uh, as we've done probably several times as we've gone through the book of Revelation. So uh, so let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, help us not to avoid the difficult subjects that are raised in your word, even though your voice uh, often frightens us or disturbs us. Your purposes are good, and we we desperately need to hear you speaking to us. So please help us by your Holy Spirit, the spirit of divine love, the spirit of Christ, to hear and understand your word, to receive and trust your word, to respond 
to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 15, starting in verse 5. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, or vials, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke, from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth or the land. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him the glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east, or the kings from the sunrise. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed." And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great which is Jerusalem, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, So, this may be mostly a refresher for uh, 
a lot of you, um, just this first part, uh, maybe the first time you really considered these things, but let me run quickly through several of the details in our passage. Uh, we're not going to talk about everything, uh, as usual. Um, but some of these details so that you can understand <clears throat> the, get the general gist of how we're interpreting this, uh, together here. Revelation is full of symbolic language and, uh, symbolic imagery. Uh, every little detail means something. Every little detail represents something. We learn how to interpret those symbols. We learn the meaning of them and the represent, what they represent uh, from the rest of the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. So when we read about seven angels with bowls full of the wrath of God, pouring them out onto the earth or the land, um, the sea, the rivers, and the sun, and, and so forth, these are ways of speaking figuratively. So <clears throat> in verse 2, the earth or the land it represents Israel, particularly unbelieving Jews who oppose Jesus, and the plague is coming upon them. Verse 3, the sea represents the Gentile nations, particularly pagan Rome, and a plague is coming upon them. Uh, verse 4, the, the rivers and springs of water represent the Jewish religious authorities that are centered in the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 8, the sun represents a great ruler, uh, probably the Roman emperor himself. Verse 10, the, the throne of the beast represents the power of Rome and so on. So when we read about plagues coming upon these people and coming through these systems, the, the throne of the beast, everything goes dark and people are having a terrible time of it uh, because Rome is, is uh, chaotic uh, there in the couple of years leading up to AD 70. <clears throat> we read about plagues like that coming upon the people in Israel and really around the Roman Empire. We see similarities between this in our passage the language of it, and the judgments that came upon Egypt in Exodus when God delivered his people out from under Egyptian oppression. We remember with that, that God had told his people ahead of time that he would harden Pharaoh's heart, the ruler of the Egyptians. He would harden his heart in order to bring about a final showdown between him and Pharaoh, between his power and Pharaoh's power. And not, not just to destroy a wicked, oppressive nation or its ruler, but to show his own power to save his people so that everybody in the world would know who God is, who Yahweh is, the one true God, and what kind of God he is that would save his people like this. So we remember the final judgment of Pharaoh and Egypt. It was with uh, great finality that God brought upon them those terrible plagues, which resulted in the salvation of his people. That was the purpose of that final judgment upon Egypt and Pharaoh, was the salvation of his people. Cosmic level biblical judgments are recorded in the book of Exodus, and the fall of Jerusalem is spoken of here in very similar terms. So Jesus talked about this quite a bit, especially in, in uh, the last week of his life leading up to his crucifixion. He says in Luke 13, Jesus laments over the city. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathered, gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. Behold, then your house is forsaken. So, because of Jerusalem's violent rejection of God's word, every time uh, God sent prophets to Jerusalem, they, they killed them. They opposed them and, and uh, tried to get rid of them because of their violent rejection of God's word, and especially because of their unwillingness to repent and come to Jesus for mercy, to be found uh, tucked under his wing, protectively, 
to find refuge in the shadow of his wings. Because of their unwillingness to repent and come, Je- come to Jesus for mercy, he prophesies their destruction. And not even his own disciples thought that it could be possible, really, that such a famous and magnificent city as Jerusalem would fall. They were standing there wondering at how great the city, how great the temple, how great the stones were <laughs> that uh, this temple was built from. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left standing upon another. And it was going to happen in the lifetime of that generation. He says a lot about this in Matthew 23 through 25. And that is the level of utter devastation that happened. Not one stone left standing upon another. That happened 40 years after Jesus talked about it in AD 70. So that, uh, that spring, in the spring of 70, the year 70 AD, As usual, pilgrims were gathering in Jerusalem for the great annual festival. It's the Passover celebration that happens in the spring. And and during this time, ancient historians estimated that uh, the population of the city would regularly swell to over a million people. Some estimates say like two million people, which is a lot of people in the ancient world. So the population would swell during Passover. Jews and proselytes coming from not just the rest of the sort of the land of Israel, uh, Judea, but... um, But from all over the world, wherever they were dispersed, they would come to offer sacrifices at the temple. And just a few days before Passover, I think it's three days before uh, the the festivities begin, Roman forces surrounded the city. And they did that because the Jews had become increasingly unruly and violent against Rome. There were always these uprisings from the Jews, and the, the Romans wanted to tamp it down once and for all. So General Titus came to bring their rebellion to a dramatic end. And they laid siege to the city. And in a siege, you cut off the city's food supply. That's just sort of what happens. And it's deliberate. You're trying either to starve your enemy or to get them to give up because they need food. So the Romans had cut off the city's food supply in their siege, but the the Jews inside the city, the Jewish zealots, they made, made matters worse for themselves. They destroyed their own food stocks. And maybe they did this partially to get all the, the other trapped Jews inside the city to fight harder in desperation. And maybe they did this because they were trying to force God's hand to help them against their enemies. Destroyed their own food stocks in a city that's under st- siege. So when they began to starve, history tells us they began to eat their own children. One doesn't even want to imagine the, the terrifying hopeless insanity of a situation like that. Uh, Josephus, Josephus is a, uh, he was a Jewish historian. He was working with the Romans. He was outside the city. He was with the Romans, came with their army. The Romans had brought him in actually to try to negotiate a surrender with the Jews in Jerusalem. But uh, they had these peace talks. The Jews violated the peace talks and tried to kill General Titus. Um, So that ended the peace talks. (laughs) (laughs) And in the end, it took the Romans about four months to break through Jerusalem's defenses. And it was an absolute slaughter. And it began in the temple. And Josephus, the historian, wrote that round the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher. While down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood. It's not the kind of river that the Jews were expecting to flow out of the temple. It was supposed to be the river of the springs of the water of life, according to their prophecies. 
but instead it was a river of their own blood. And General Titus couldn't restrain his own troops uh, from rampaging through the city. He actually wanted to, but they were all really angry at this point. And by the end of it, there was absolutely nothing left, even to make people believe that Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. The great city was unrecognizable by the time the Romans had swept through it. According to Josephus, over one million Jews were killed and almost 100,000 prisoners were enslaved. And that just makes it one of the most terrible things that's ever happened in the history of human civilization. General Titus, uh, when he came home, he was hailed as victor. And you can still see the Arch of Titus in Rome that was built in celebration of his victory over the Jews. It's still there in Rome. But Titus himself, he refused the customary wreath of victory that you would wear as you entered the city victorious. Uh, He claimed only to be an instrument of divine wrath. And Jewish scholars from the next few centuries attributed the fall of Jerusalem to divine wrath, to the wrath of God, their own scholars calling it punishment for their, their senseless violence as a people. Jesus had foretold all of this before the Jerusalem authorities had him crucified, and the time for these things was drawing near for the early church to see that John is writing to here. <clears throat> Jesus had told his disciples why this was going to happen. He says in Matthew 23, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some, of, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. This is the book of Acts that he's talking about, uh, which was future to to this conversation with the disciples. He says, I'm going to send you prophets and saints, and you're going to kill them, and you're going to persecute them, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. That was going to be the the punishment. The fall of Jerusalem was God's final judgment upon those who rejected their own Messiah, who continued an active, violent opposition to him and to his people. Uh, the church. In our passage, the angel pouring out the third bowl of God's wrath upon the waters representing the Jewish religious authorities and the temple, the angel says to the Lord, they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink is what they deserve. So this is what's happening here. The Jews in their hostility to Jesus and hostility toward his followers in the church, they're being portrayed as bloodthirsty. They're eager to shed blood, eager to kill actually true believers. They think they're killing heretics. They claim to be killing heretics. But they're really eager, bloodthirsty, uh, to kill true believers. They'd sought to spill the blood of the martyrs, those who bore witness to Christ. And now God was pouring that blood down their throats, making them drink the cup of the wine of the uh, the fury of his wrath, it says in, in verse 19. He'd make them drink the cup they, they had chosen. They chose this cup, and he was going to make them drink it and drain it to the dregs. It's not literal, necessarily. Remember, it's symbolic language. But drinking the blood of the martyrs would have them staggering and reeling, the kind of imagery we find throughout the Old Testament prophets. That's what drinking God's wrath does to you. It destroys you. And N.T. Wright says, It's time for the destroyers to be destroyed. That's what's happening here. And the angel praises God for his justice. He says, it's what they deserve. 
As the persecutors of the church attacked the saints and shed their blood in God's justice, that very act became their own ruin. Because you don't hate others without it destroying you. You don't destroy others without that thing destroying you. You especially don't hate and destroy others in the name of Yahweh, in the name of God, without that destroying you. The Jews had believed that they were serving God when they violently opposed Jesus and his people. But such hatred and hostility is exposed here as antithetical to God's nature, is exposed everywhere in the scriptures, is antithetical to his nature. And they should have recognized that they were fighting God himself in the flesh. They should have recognized who Jesus was. They should have recognized that they were fighting God's true people in the church. In God's patience, they'd been given long enough to repent But now their final judgment was upon them, and there would be no more opportunity for that. No more opportunity for repentance for those who had proven themselves unwilling and unable to repent. Their rebellion against God would be their own undoing. That's what our rebellion against God is. It's our own undoing. This passage might not be primarily about the inevitable uh, final judgment that all people everywhere will face which we will face, it's primarily about something that has already happened to those who refused to repent and who persisted in that refusal to repent. Even though it's in the past, it holds out a good warning for us, for our future. And the warning is this. God is just. God will come in judgment. And it will be the end of those who do not repent of their sins. And all of this is actually good news. We talked about that last week. It's good news that God is just. It's good news that he'll come in judgment. But it will not be received as good news by those who suffer his judgments. They won't praise God for his justice, just as they several times here in uh, in this passage, it's recorded that they'll blaspheme and curse God for the severity of their judgments. But just because God might stand against you doesn't make him evil or cruel. Just because God might stand against you doesn't make God evil or wrong or unjust or cruel. The triune God of love, which is who he is, he's revealed to be in the scriptures. The triune God of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, stands against those who stand against love by their own hatred and hostility, their own rebellion against him. If he does not stand against evil, how could he be good? But he is good. He alone is good. He alone is just and true. So if you find yourself facing his wrath, it's not because he is evil. It's because you're evil. And no one likes to hear that. No one likes to think that about themselves. Which is why people refuse to listen to the gospel or to repent. Which is why people persecute the the people who preach this gospel in the church. But if you persist in not repenting, you'll find yourself on the wrong end of God's wrath, which is inescapable because this God lives forever and ever. And God will be praised for his justice, and it will be said of you is what they deserve. As Christians, we don't exempt ourselves from this need to repent. Christians are not perfect people. We're not even good enough people. 
Christians do not boast and claim that others may need to repent. Those people over there, those, those people, they need to repent. But we don't need to repent. That's not what Christians say. That's not what they believe. That was the mantra of Jerusalem, <clears throat> which suffered final judgment. Christians <clears throat> are just those who, by God's grace, we repent when we hear Jesus calling us to repent. Which should be pretty much all the time <laughs> that we hear Jesus calling us to repent. Martin Luther put it very well, uh, a quote that I've used several times before, the first of his 95 theses, those famous <clears throat> theses. He says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not just something you do when you first become a Christian. <clears throat> it's something that characterizes your whole life. We hear what the Lord is saying when he tells us about our sins. When his spirit convicts us of our sins. We might struggle to admit it sometimes uh, about ourselves. But we confess our sins because he calls us to do that. We realize that everyone, every single person who ever lived, either gets what he or she deserves, or through repentance and faith, we get what Jesus deserves. That's your only two options. You get what you deserve for your rebellion against God, or you get what Jesus deserves for his faithfulness to God. Jesus was the only person who could ever say, I don't need to repent. He's the only person who never had any sins of his own to confess to God. But he came, and he became one of us, and he identified with us to the degree that he repented for us. He confessed our sins on our behalf. He was baptized for the forgiveness, not of his own sins, but for our sins. He was crucified for us. He accepted what we deserved. And he did it so that we could receive what he deserved, a relationship with God, the God who lives forever and ever, a relationship that lasts forever and ever, in which we are considered children of God, righteous, pure, and innocent of all sin. We're considered that way because Jesus deserves to be considered that way. Do you believe that? Do you entrust yourself to him? Do you confess that apart from Jesus, you deserve God's final judgment? Do you recognize your own hostility against God, against God's ways, against God's nature, perhaps even against God's Messiah sometimes and God's people in the church? Do you see the ways that you've hated or despised others, perhaps even thinking you are hating other people because, well, you're on God's side, hating and despising others in God's name? If you recognize that, there's hope for you even now if you repent and throw yourself on Jesus for his mercy. Any enemy of Christ is invited to repent and become one of Christ's people. The people of Christ must repent. You must. And that's a big point of this passage. It's a, it's a warning, and it's given to those in the church who still have time to repent. Jesus interrupts the vision of final judgment here in verse 15 to get our attention. He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Happy is the one who stays awake 
keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and, and be seen exposed, right? So he's saying now, right now is the time. <clears throat> now is always the time to respond to Jesus, to stay responsive to Jesus, to prepare to meet Jesus with anticipation. This is what we hope for, for those in our lives who have not yet repented and believed the gospel, that people would be prepared to meet Jesus, that they would look forward to it with anticipation. Because you're going to meet him. And we hope that this would be a good prospect for you. We want you to anticipate meeting Jesus with hope and with joy because you know him. Because you know who he is. You know what he's like. You know him as Savior and as Lord, this one who received on the cross what you deserved so that you could receive what he deserves in God's presence forever. So turn to him. Return to him. Keep doing that. Keep returning to Jesus and be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, each of us here needs you. Each and every single one of us, we need you. We need your love. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your forgiveness. You have patiently extended all of these things to us. And you've said that there will come a time of final judgment for those who continue to refuse you. Please, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, stop us in our tracks. Turn our faces to you. Soften our hard hearts. Grant us true repentance. Help us in the weakness of our faith and keep us in your love so that we would anticipate seeing you in your glory with hope and joy. We pray in your name. Amen.